I'm not, I'm not saying it in a critical way. Like if you care deeply about Israel, if you care deeply about anything, uh, feminism, yeah, you care whatever, about figure, yeah. any, any cause that you want, yeah. and you have the means to support a media organization that is just all in on that one topic, yeah. right? And there's a clear direction in which it can go, good for you, you should yeah. support it. But organizations that are more broad in their outlook, that, that act as a fourth estate, that don't just do fourth estate stuff in the tr traditional journalism sense, but also bring out voices of emerging creative talent, yeah. young writers yeah. that are experimenting with new forms of expression through social media, through print, through video, yeah. that aren't just doing it as influencers on social media, yeah. but that are actually um, committed to some kind of communal conversation. Yeah. That's the role that media plays, and it's a risky business. Yeah. This episode, we have the opportunity to have a conversation with Leo Lazar. He's the associate publisher of 70 Faces Media, um, a, new, a, a Jewish news company. Um, it's a parent company of several labels, including uh, JTA, The New York Jewish Week, Hey Alma, Nasher, My Jewish Learning, uh, Kveller, I think I got them all. And uh, we, we had an interesting conversation about also his upbringing and uh, his background as someone who's born to, uh, you know, to, to folks who, are, who immigrated to the United States, how that influenced his own story and kind of his background and his professional career. And then we dug deeper into the role of media, both local and national, its role in, in shaping discourse, its responsibility in being the connective tissue within communities and kind of the shifts that we've seen over time um, that, are, that are changing the way we consume media, both within the Jewish community and outside the Jewish community. And all that through a lens of, of the importance of, of how these news uh, and media outlets, um, uh, how important they are in creating that connective tissue between individuals and communities. So that's in the episode today. We hope you enjoy it. Take a listen. You know, the podcast is on all your favorite platforms and follow us on the social media. We got TikTok, we got Twitter, Facebook, um, and of course, uh, Instagram. And uh, we hope you enjoy this episode as well. Welcome to our uh, second episode uh, of the podcast, uh, the Z3 podcast. Um, I'm very excited that you're here. We have uh, Leo Lazar. He's the associate publisher of 70 Faces Media, which is the parent, or parent company, I guess, of several brands, Alma, JTA, New York Jewish Week, uh, My Jewish Learning, Kveller, and Nasher, which is um, also there. So um, you looking for a job or? No, I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm good. Okay, I'm good. I'm happy. I get to I get right. to interview friends and. That's very good. That's very good. Yeah. It's very good. But uh, but the podcast really as we is um, the idea is to host all kinds of uh, thinkers, leaders, doers from the Jewish world, uh, explore some ideas of Jewish peoplehood, relationship to Israel uh, and diaspora Jewry, some personal journeys, and really just um, give our audience uh, an opportunity to learn more about what's happening in the Jewish world. Sometimes it's very much about current news, sometimes it's more uh, conceptual. But, um, you know, it's kind of, uh, we're trying to expand our conversation outside of the, the conference alone to, to other mediums, and, and we're excited. This is great and, and awesome. Thanks for schlepping in, uh, you know. Uh, Thank you for having us. me. So, yeah, so, I mean, I, I, we can jump right into it, I guess. Sure. Um, you know, I'd like to start in asking folks, like, how did they end up where they are today in their role, right? We have to go through the whole thing, but because part of that, you know, kind of also gives insight to people's uh, journey professionally and also from their identity perspective. So you have a, an interesting kind of story. And, sure. Yeah. Um, so I started out in corporate finance. I worked for GE International out of their Paris office. Okay. And I was a foot soldier for them in a rotational program. This means that I lived in a different 
country and city for six months at a time, I would have a different assignment. Okay. And I would work for controllers, CFOs, kind of finance people. Okay. And I thought that that was kind of it, that I had basically chosen the wrong professional track and that I was screwed forever. Yeah. Uh, but what ended up happening was GE owned NBC Universal. Okay. And I audited NBC uh, okay. out of their yeah, so before before you, but to just to clarify, so you were like really heavily on the finance finance side. Yes. You were auditing, yes. you were, okay. Yes. All right. Oh, yeah, no, I was like hardcore spreadsheets, Excel, accounting, okay. uh, uh, reporting standards, SEC, okay. I mean, just thick, thick, thick finance. Okay. No sales, nothing. Right. And NBC was owned by GE. All right. And I got what to me was the dream assignment of auditing NBC in the final three months before it was sold off to Comcast. I worked uh, at 30 Rock uh, in uh, Jack Welsh's old office, actually. Awesome. We shared an office with 10 other people. And I learned not only about the kind of complex financial reporting rules around media companies, but I also learned about media math and how media professionals, CFOs, and accountants in fin and, in a, at media companies value uh, the products that they sell, ads, uh, placements, and others. Interesting. And media math to me was much more intuitive and interesting than the kind of accounting that I had learned you know, with um, uh, medical devices okay. or even securities and some of the other strange products that GE sold. I decided that after that audit assignment, I wanted to stay in New York. It helps that my now wife lived there. My friends lived there. I went to Princeton. So all of my friends were in New Jersey and New York. And it was a no-brainer to basically settle in New York after a life on the road. The thing with working in television, as great as it is, is that it's called linear television. It's, it's linear. It's predictable. It's pretty boring. Things change, and they're dynamic. But you have to rewind the clock a little bit and realize that in 2010, which is when I was working there, this was the era of great innovation mm -hmm. on the web. Okay. The iPhone and Twitter came out in 2007. Instagram was acquired in 2012. Politico, BuzzFeed, HuffPo, Jezebel, so many brands and companies that we associate with dominance, not just media dominance, but technological right. dominance were emerging at that time. Mm. And I felt boxed into TV. So I took a job at a small, what seems like a dynamic media company that was specialized in the fine arts. They had acquired a number of websites, other assets, a French publishing house. They owned magazines uh, that they circulated on a monthly basis. I thought it was a perfect place for me to cut my teeth beyond TV, to take this media map that I learned at NBC and to uh, apply it mm. to other channels, and specifically the web. And it was great. I was able to be a big fish in a small pond for a short time. But the company wasn't particularly well run. And I started looking around for other jobs, and I saw an opening on LinkedIn from the JTA. I knew the JTA. Yeah. I was a reader of the Jerusalem Post at, for a, a big part of college. I was also in college president of the APAC local chapter. Mm -hmm. I was very involved in the Jewish community. I was music director of the Jewish a cappella group. It was, I had gone to an American Jewish high school. I felt very Jewishly connected, even though the first phase of my career was not at all Jewish. I saw this opening with JTA, and I read in between the lines of the job description, and I was like, this organization doesn't actually know what they need. And I think I know, for the first time in my career, I think I know how to lead 
in a certain capacity for this one thing that I know how to do, which is media math, in this case, monetization. Mm. They needed someone to lead the business side of a nonprofit that had not the intention of only making its money through advertising in the ways that for-profit media companies do, but that intended to maximize that potential in a way that didn't compromise its mission. And I was game. I thought that was fantastic opportunity. So the marriage for you between like your, your skill set coming from the more corporate side of things, um, together with like your personal identity and, 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 and caring for the subject matter, and, and then assisting with a nonprofit kind of came together to this perfect, perfect opportunity at JTA. Yeah, and, and it just so happened that this was not a sleepy, out-of-date nonprofit that was living in the past, even though JTA, for those who don't know, who are yeah. listening, Jewish Telegraphic Agency is 100 years old. Right. It's existed since 1917. It's a newswire service right. that you know, used to support hundreds of mm. Jewish publications around the world. Today, it supports about 70 publications worldwide. But it was created by Jewish uh, emigres who wanted to know what was going on in the motherland. They mm. left Russia. They left uh, uh, Western Europe for America, for Israel, for other places. And they wanted to stay in touch with their home communities because obviously it wasn't a particularly safe time to be a Jew. Right. And the JTA emerged as the Jewish news network of the world at a time where obviously the internet didn't exist, where TV was not widespread, where even radio wasn't particularly widespread. Interesting, yeah. So I want to put, a, for a second, just put a pin in this, like where you are, you know, you, that's where you started JTA and kind of roll it back a little bit because, um, I, you know, we've had conversations about this, but I think it's actually very interesting because it does uh, add another layer to your work and to your perspective. You know, I was going to say almost in, in, in jest, like, oh, it's perfect. You know, also for someone who, who did not grow up in the States, you know, wasn't born here and came, it was like, you know, perfect, you know, a perfect match in that sense of like staying in touch with, you know, uh, that. But, but so take us a little bit before that. You said college, you were at Princeton, you were involved in APAC, involved in Jewish a cappella group, but what's a little bit of the origin story? Like, where, how did this, and how does that in, inform who you are, I guess? Sure. Yeah. Um, my family is French. Right. I grew up among expats in Washington, D.C. Okay. My parents were at the IMF and the World Bank. Okay. And I didn't grow up, I mean, I went to shul, I went to high school, I right. went to Hebrew school, but I was not super actively plugged into the Jewish community okay. in Washington, D.C. Spoke French at home, went to the French International School. My friends were the children of diplomats and other kind of multinational nonprofit staff. Right. But when I was nine years old, we moved to Paris for a few years. My parents had an assignment there. Okay. And my family, extended family, lives in France. Cousins, both on my father's side, who's Ashkenaz, and my mother was Sephardi, Moroccan. Mm. It was a, not intended as such, but it ended up being a Jewish renaissance for me, mm. where I was exposed to a European community that resembles much more probably what we get in Israel than you have in the United States, where there isn't these... There aren't these heavy distinctions between reformed, conservative, orthodox, mm -hmm. people's Jewish identity, their, their Jewish bearing mm. is not so directly correlated with how much or how specifically they practice the religion. Interesting. Being Jewish is an integral part of who you are and how you feel. And that was refreshing for me as a kid. The fact that the community was Sephardic meant that there was an aesthetic quality, a vocal quality, a joy, an energy, good food, a certain lightness to the Judaism, which I did not feel so much in the United States. And it might have just been my age. It might have been. Do you think that you're that, I mean, that's, that's 
very interesting. And I can also notice how like you lit up when you started describing like you know like the food, the music, and and all that. But I'm just curious about you know because I as someone who you know was born and raised in Israel with American parents and very much kind of feeling that that otherness in a way, regardless of where I am, or or or, or not a, you know a lack of rootedness maybe almost. Um, do you think is it you know looking back at it? Do you think that part of of that sense that you had in the U.S. growing up. I mean, there's the age component for sure. Is that? Do you think is part of it because of the 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 group in which your you know your professional cadre of your parents and like that like diplomat core almost sense that we were like we're 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 visitors, we're not nationals, and that was like a much more of a like a stronger component of the of the group identity as opposed to like going to to France, like almost almost going home, right in a way, right. And like, how did that how did that dynamic play out? Totally, yeah. totally. It, very similar to Silicon Valley, yeah. where DC is a place. The majority of people who live there mm. certainly arrive thinking it's going to be a temporary thing. I'm right. here for my job. I'm here because the jobs are amazing. The companies here are world class, and I'm going to make it work until I can go back home to my family, to my roots, to where I belong. Right. Some people stay. Other people, like my parents, return to their to their home country after having lived and worked in that place for 20, 30 years. I should say that, yes, 100%, there was a sense of rootedness, a sense of history and connection to the place, which whether I looked at the Sephardi, the Sephardi side of my family or the Ashkenazi side of my family was very, very strong in France. Mm. Not to denigrate American yeah. Jewish sense of history, right. but certainly in France it goes much deeper. It's right. the country that uh, is responsible for Rashi. Right. Um, my Moroccan side were proud of, yeah. of rabbis going back to the 1300s. Right. There was a, a sense of history that was that was that transcended any one country, really, mm. in a lot of ways. Right. At the French school where I went before uh, going to an American Jewish high school, I was the only Jew. Mm. And I'll say this: I wasn't. I didn't feel I was the only Jew. Maybe there were one or two other families, but I didn't feel a, a sense of oppressive difference. Okay. I'd say that what I experienced at that age was similar to what I imagine a lot of families who send their kids to Hebrew school but don't actively participate in the synagogue today might feel. A deep sense of internal identification with the Jewish community, but also a certain sense of alienation. Kind of feeling like, I'm Jewish, I want my kids to be Jewish, I want my life to have that Jewish component, but this, this community, this, these solutions that I have, these options that I have available to me locally, just don't do it for me. There's no one thing that feels right. Mm. Mm. So then you, so, so then moving to, to France, that kind of like jump started. You almost, you called it a um, a renaissance of your identity. Did that translate when you came back? Do you think that was you know as much as you, you can you know? Think totally, about it? But, yeah. totally. Yeah. Initially, I went to a French high school in D.C. for one year, and my parents decided no. Yeah. It was the eighth grade, so I switched to a, fr a Jewish high school, an American okay, Jewish high school, so in the ninth is, grade. All right, no, okay. Right, right when I moved yeah. back. So yeah. I went to an American Jewish high school, and the Renaissance kind of continued. There I had my exposure, my first real substantive exposure to American Jewish institutional life. A big, for me, my, my, my friends complained about it, but for me, a big yeah. American Jewish high school campus. Yeah. We had soccer jerseys yeah. and varsity <laughs> teams yeah. and... Yeah. It just felt so robust yeah. and not rich, but it just felt structured and serious and committed yeah. and permanent. There was the 
enthusiasm that I remember from France was lacking, but the institutions, the bones, were much more impressive in a lot of ways. And so it was, a, it was, a, it was like transposed into the, to the symmetrical opposite in a lot of ways. Got it. That's awesome. So then, so high school, then off to college, Princeton. Yeah. Shout out to Charles E. Smith Jewish yeah. Day School <laughs> in Washington, D.C. Yeah. I loved JDS. It was amazing. Yeah. I went to Princeton, like not a particularly Jewish place, right. but also a very Jewish place. Yeah. A small Jewish community of exceptional men and women that came from all around. It was my first exposure there to the New York Jewish community. Mm. I, but I, as you know from our conversations, for me, New York is... Long Island, New Jersey, Westchester, right. I kind of loop it all in. Manhattan, yeah. it's, all, it's all part of the same the nebula, yeah, yeah. right? Um, I, I wrote my thesis on contemporary anti-Semitism in France and how it's often wow. misunderstood. Yeah. I majored in public policy. I didn't do a semester abroad. It was, it was an amazing time. Yeah. But I'd say, despite my involvement with the Jewish community, one where, certainly from a religious perspective, I was dialed back. Yeah. Uh, I was I was more culturally Jewish than I was religiously Jewish. Right, but but it seems you know um, some other guests maybe or in other conversations I've had over the years like uh, not always there's like an integration between like the academic part and then there's like the social part and the, where those Jewish identities kind of intersect and meet each other overlap, and it sounds just in your very brief you know description now that there were that that there was it wasn't a hard and fast rule right where you're like you're pursuing an academic path I mean it also do with what you studied but that, that allowed you to kind of try out, you know, um, um, different or investigate issues that were also relevant in your private, right? So there was like your private life, your academic life, and it all kind of came together. And that, in, and it ring, I don't know, I have no idea. I'm like not trying to analyze you here. You are on a couch, I'm on a couch, right? Feel free, but like, feel free. You know, but I'm like, <laughs> the way you described like the integrated identity as someone who, you know, when you were in France, right, where it's everywhere, you know, and I and I certainly resonates with me as an Israeli. Like I don't know how to I don't know how to, to to bifurcate between my different types of or parts of who I am. Right? It's all kind of one and the same. Um, it's like that's kind of what I hear you saying when you're, when you're off in college. You're like, yeah, I studied you know contemporary anti anti-Semitism, and, and but I was also you know part of clubs outside of the the you know extracurricular Jewish activities. I guess is that like is, am I just making that up, or do you feel like no, hundred percent, yeah, hundred percent, yeah. yeah, interesting, yeah, hundred percent, and yeah. and it just so happened that. Princeton had a reputation of not being a good place for the Jews, which, which right. couldn't have been farther from the truth, right. right? So 50 years ago, 70 years ago, the school ties kind of stereotype of the very preppy environment that wasn't welcoming to the Jews might have mm. been true. But the Princeton that I experienced was one that was extraordinarily welcoming to the Jewish community. I started college a few days after 9-11. Mm. It was a a defining time to be studying. I had spent the six months in Israel prior to that. I graduated early from high school. Mm. We, we did the, you know, the, the, the bus tour, oh, okay. a multiple yeah. month tour uh, in Israel. It was an amazing time to be thinking about the Middle East, to be studying uh, emerging conflicts of the 20th century, and certainly one where we welcome Jews from all walks of life. Right, right, interesting. So, uh, so college, after career, corporate, you find yourself lost almost, and then and then like you stumble across this like um, um, this position, right. JTA. Right. So so and you've been there basically since. Yeah, nine years. I mean, yeah. I joined JTA. It was 2014. There were fewer than 30 of us. Okay. You know, Jewish nonprofits often compete for how schlocky their offices are. <laughs> I can promise you that we win the cake. Yeah. 
it was a, a kind of tight-knit, eclectic group of people. The vast majority, and to this day, still the vast majority of our staff are writers mm -hmm. and creatives. But at the time, there was a heavy uh, weight, we'll say, that was uh, the representation of the JTA staff, and there was less representation of people who were working for My Jewish Learning, okay. for Kveller. Alma didn't exist at the time, right. and we didn't own the New York Jewish Week. Right. Nasher was really a one-woman show in Shannon. Since that time, we've almost doubled in size. Yeah, so wait, just to clarify, because I'm, uh, this is all, like, I don't, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. But from the first day, it was, all those brands were attached already? J or, or like, what was the? The merger happened technically on Jan 1, 2015. Ah. And so while I responded to a job posting by JTA, yeah. I often say that I was the first 70 Faces media hire right. because I was not hired to monetize JTA. I was mm -hmm. hired to create a business and monetization strategy for a newly formed nonprofit that would operate all these companies. Each one was struggling. One was JTA, right. and they were struggling because of big headwinds that were being that were impacting local local news and local media. And the other organization that was struggling, despite its great success, was My Jewish Learning Incorporated, which had created Kveller initially as a side blog, but that turned into a runaway success, in part because one of its early contributors, Maim Bialik, turned into a superstar. Right. And she was backed by an amazing editorial team, right. many of whom are still involved in 70 Faces Media today. So from the beginning, 70 Faces Media essentially, right, has like these different sub-brands, I guess, for different markets. Can you maybe like share a little bit more about what, like what maybe each one of these sub-brands, you know, who their primary audience is, how that works? Um, because, you know, I, there's something to be said about like a segmented audience in that way, or even within the Jewish, the Jewish world, and then, well, you know, the implications of that outside. Sure. Yeah. Feller was a parenting site okay. that was designed initially for young Jewish moms. My Jewish Learning was a site that people ended on when they Googled, when they, when they Googled something. It was created, I think, before Wikipedia even existed. Oh. It was funded by the Bronfman Foundation with the notion that one day users would go to the internet to answer basic Jewish questions as opposed to Smart. asking a rabbi. Yeah. Spot on. Yeah. JTA, Newsies, there are stereotypes about who reads the news, what demographic profiles they fit in, but Broadly speaking, let's call them newsies, typically like more male, slightly older. Alma, which was founded much later, is young men and women. I wouldn't say that it's just women, um, but very young, very cosmopolitan. Overall, our publications skew pretty American. So about 80% of our users are in the United States. And age-wise, unlike a lot of Jewish organizations, and I think this is what you were getting at with segmentation, we have a really nice distribution of users. All of our data is based on either surveys or web analytics. Mm. Web analytics doesn't tell you anything about users below the age of 18. So we can't certify that XYZ number of our users right. are below the age of 18. We do suspect though that a, a number of our users are using My Jewish Learning or JTA Archives or other products as part of their research. Right. Not necessarily to to answer deep-rooted philosophical concerns, yeah, although right. we do have partnerships with, yeah. with Jewish Board in New York designed for teens. But it's a great advantage to own a family of brands that each target different segments of the broader Jewish spectrum. Even when you say, okay, 70 Faces Media, 
we don't cater to the Haredi Jewish world. I think that's a very, very fair statement yeah. to make, right? Yeah. We still have a, a very diverse, very demarcated spectrum of users, right. and each one is going to respond to a different kind of Jewish content. And the truth is, those, those units, those segments, are not purely demographic. It's not like Alma is just our website for young women. Right. That is the predominant demographic that we're going to see in there, but it's about people who engage Jewishly through cinema, through books, through music, through contemporary debate. Mm. My Jewish learning is going to be predominantly female and skewing slightly older, but we're still going to reach the full spectrum of Jews. No bucket is going to have fewer than 10 to 15% of users. Right. So we're going to, and in the case of my Jewish learning, you have to realize my Jewish learning in, in, in on average, we'll have a million users per month. So when you talk about 10%, yeah. that's, a, that's a lot of people, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're able to, to reach these different segments. We have products that appeal to them. And at the end of the day, it makes our job very complicated. Yeah. Because when funders or grassroots donors want to understand who do you support, how do you measure your impact, inevitably, we have to produce a number of different metrics and graphs. Right. And it gets complicated pre pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But you're raising here something that I find interesting, and I and I and again, this is most of my questions are are, are out of ignorance, right? <laughs> Not like I'm, but I'm I am curious to, you know, if we if we, the the implication of having these conversations with donors, and you raise it of course earlier, right? And and we named it, is that Seventy Faces Media operates as a nonprofit, mm -hmm. right? And I don't know to say I I really don't know if that's true across media at all, or media is for profit generally speaking, and they have and they're driven sometimes by. Um, amongst other things, a bottom line, right? But what does it mean for a news, news is right the word, a media company to be a nonprofit? And how does that like, what does that mean about the mission? What does that mean about the way you, you approach curating this sure. content? It's important to note that I'm not a journalist. Right. So while I'm a, a media executive, I really defer to my colleagues in editorial whenever it comes to questions about the editorial implications, the content implications of anything. Right. Okay. What I can speak to, though, is the landscape aspect of things. Some of the most famous news outlets in the world are nonprofits. Okay. The BBC is one good example. NPR and PBS is another great example. Lesser known, but have a big reputation in our world, something like the Texas Tribune, the Columbia Journalism Review. Mm -hmm. These are ultimately organizations that are nonprofits in the sense that they are a 501c3 or they receive you know, the, the foreign equivalent of that. Right. By the way, in Israel, yeah. I, I should know the answer to this in Israel. No, there's Kanahatsa, which is like the, that's, that's like the PBS, basically, Correct. right? right. The, the public, so yes, there's like the, 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 the PBSs, right, right, but like there's the nonprofit pieces where I'm like. So, yeah. so a, a, nonprofit organ a nonprofit, I think, has really more has to do with where the money comes from. Right. Who is funding the organization, and how much the organization ends up depending on ad revenue right. to function. Right. What, what they're allowed to do with that money, what they're allowed to say, like you can't write. To be a 501c3 specifically, right? You can't. Um, you can't lobby. That's exactly right. right. You can't distribute um, uh, revenue to your to your officers, right? So there's 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 the regulatory element. That's right. But like in the Jewish context, right? Is there like anything that's unique besides that? Like in terms of like we want to reach. 
like this demographic. We want to shape this type of discourse. We want to um, influence. Uh, it's yeah. all, you're, you are, like any Jewish nonprofit, yeah. you are bound by your mission. Right. And you need to stick to your mission. And obviously, you need to be compliant with local regs right. in the process. For sure. But you have a mission. Right. For us, our mission is to connect users to wherever they are in their Jewish journey. Our mission is evolving. We're, we're, we're deploying new concepts like being the connective tissue mm -hmm. of the Jewish community, supporting users wherever they are, both in terms of like the objectively, like their level of learning and their level of connection with Jewish content, right. but also throughout different life phases that they're experiencing throughout different experiences that they're trying to engage in as part of their non-digital life, right. to be there for them in a way that is more than just sharing great content or, or, right. or publishing great content that is useful or informative uh, at a short moment. Got it. Does that help, I mean, it does, I guess, determine the, the content, right? Like, it doesn't start with like a question as silly as like, is it good for the Jews? But like, if it's relevant, then it's gonna be included. Right, uh, depending on the on the audience and the platform, for sure. Um, but that's kind of like. But this is where brand and this is where brand and stewardship yeah. and responsibility come into play. Right. Legally speaking, I'm not a lawyer, but I think yeah. a nonprofit media company could could be awful. Right. From the perspective of being committed to principles of integrity, honesty, and mm. quality, right. nothing prevents them by virtue of being a for-profit or a nonprofit. Right. Supply and demand, the market. Do you, where's your money coming from? Right. Nor does for-profit or non-profit automatically determine whether an organization is going to lean too heavily in one direction or the other. Sure. We have an independent board of directors. In our case, and it's true for many other non-profits, that represent a broad range of mm. perspectives, politically and religiously. Right. Like all good Jewish groups, they disagree with each other, they argue with one another, right. and they keep each other in check, they keep us in check to make sure that we are staying true mm -hmm. to our mission. And we're saying, and in our case, not stated so explicitly, but very much inherent to everything we do, is a commitment to the craft of not just journalism, but great writing. Mm -hmm. It's a commitment to our audiences, and it's a commitment to technology and making sure that we're not lagging too far behind to the extent that we can. Right. So to the point of like, you know, the, the, um, the standards that you hold yourself accountable to, right? How do you find, you know, how do you, um, in this moment, I mean, like, it seems like every other day there's like, we are in a moment, right? In Jewish history, the Jewish people, Israel, Now, now, now it feels yeah, pretty now, special. Yeah, it feels pretty special. Yeah. But I, but I, even in, in my, uh, um, what my memory can recall, I can, I can point to at least like 10, you know, of like, this is, this right. is a moment, right? So how do you like, how do you experience, I guess, like the, the role of media in like being in this, in this moment, right? And, and then, um, you know, as on all the levels, right? So locally, how do we, how do we, how do we navigate the discourse within our own local community? How do we report what's going on somewhere else, right? How do we translate that? Um, How's that, how's been, I know, and you're not a journalist per se, but you, you, you see the inner workings of this pretty. One of my editorial colleagues yeah. has a, a great line. I don't know if it was handed down to him uh, from the Skane name or if it yeah. was something that he came up with, but local Jewish media used to be summarized as hatch, match, and dispatch. Okay. In other words, you talk about births, marriages, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, like that. Yeah. Of course, 
it's much more complicated than that. That's like a that's a that's a lighthearted way of putting it. It's true that for most of its glory days, local Jewish or Jewish media was fundamentally local. It was a print paper mm. that people had in English or in Yiddish that spoke to where they identified in the community. Maybe they were uh, a kind of a booned socialist living in the New York metropolitan area, and they were reading whatever the, the ancestor of the foreword yeah. was. Yeah. They were living in California. They were living in Ohio. They were living in Maryland. Yeah. Nowadays, as the Jewish community has lost a lot of its fragmentation from before, where the okay. sense of Jewish identity is probably more homogenous today than it was. Okay. At, I mean, we like to think that we live in a special time, but yeah. things were much more divided, right? I, I would say historically things were much more divided, say, 100 years ago when, for example, socialism and communism and were a, a defining aspect of communal dialogue. Today, it's, it's, it's a non-issue. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. So that. Right. Fine. But yes. So maybe like some. Comp maybe today it's going to change. But like the components of like the politics. Sure. Right. The identification. But all right, yeah, I don't know enough to say about like the um, the fragmentation of it. I mean, there's certainly a sense of of, of a further fragmented community with the less of the centralized. But that's that's an institutional. That's a different. Conversation, so many of the but, synagogues when you yeah. when you go around. I'm I, also not a historian, but when you go around this country, you see that there was a, an amazing growth in, in physical Jewish institutions right. that took place, I want to say, between the 50s and the 70s, okay. right? 50s and 80s, where big fancy JCCs, big communal centers, schools, synagogues emerged. They were yeah. conservative. They were reformed. They were reconstructionist. They were not necessarily movements that were well represented or well attended. It used to be that you were either an observant Jew or, or, right. or not observant Jew, yeah. right? You had this ecosystem of Jewish institutions and identities that developed, largely supported by central organizations, foundation, yes. yeah. uh, federations, yeah. and, and some family foundations, but it all went to the central yes. bank of the yes. Jewish community. Yeah. Jewish media played an important role in keeping those Jewish gatekeepers, those Jewish leaders, in check and Got ensuring okay. that they were doing a good job. Got it. The fourth estate kind of function. And then obviously there was another part of it that was supporting the dynamic social, okay. cultural evolution of this community and engaging okay. Jews in a, in a local dialogue, Got it. Right. either so, about yeah. local issues or yeah. about national issues. Got it. Right. So, so what you're saying is so when, that, when, that, when those structures kind of weakened, um, so the purpose of the, new, the various news outlets that helped maintain that structure almost mm. also became homogenized in a way. So there's like, so like, there isn't a need to have like specific, I mean, there still are some today, right? And we can kind of identify, you know, like this, this outlet might be hue this way a little bit and this outlet might hue that way a little bit, but generally speaking, it wasn't so, it doesn't feel as cut and dry in that sense. Is that, is in ter so that's, and in that sense, it's more homogenized, right? So the news is much more, like just the news, almost. And, and life is less local. Think yeah. about how yeah. much less of a sense of rootedness yeah. you and I feel right. as like young dads yeah. compared to a generation before us. Right. And it's not just because of the internet and Zoom. Right. It's because 
we really do see America or the world as our oyster. And one day we could live in New York and another day we could live in Chicago. Right. And that's not because we're crazy. It's just the nature of, yeah. of the professional market that we live in today. Right. I can go there. There'll be a shul over there. There'll be a Jewish school over there. Hopefully it'll work. It'll, be, yeah. it'll, it'll suit the needs of my family. The, the main thing for me is that the core pillars of the institutional pillars of Jewish life in America I see as essential for us to exist, yeah. right? I'm not saying that I'm okay with there being fewer local Jewish media outlets today, but I am saying that the, because of the internet, because of the heightened importance that Jewish themes and Jewish topics has taken in non-Jewish publications. Mm. Think about how many Jewish shows there are on Netflix. Right. Think about the Jewish coverage of the New York Times, of the LA Times, of any reputable American newspaper yeah. today that might be local in its nature, or you know, the Wall Street Journal, right? Judaism has risen to a level of national prominence mm. and importance and acceptance, such that a lot of what used to happen in Jewish publications, in Jewish publications, right. supported by the Jewish community and, and Jewish advertisers and Jewish businesses, now happens at a national level. Mm. Things change. In some aspects, it's not for the better. But Jewish media's, the hits that it's taken today, are no different than what local media's hits have been. Yeah. In other words, for people who aren't in this business, I mean, I take this for granted, but I guess right. it, it bears repeating yeah, for yeah. everyone that local media has suffered tremendous hits. Yeah, we just, right. uh, today, I think, um, I think it's Santa Barbara News, a 150-year-old institution declared bankruptcy this week, today, yesterday, I don't know the exact date, but. One, one yeah. of many, yeah. and, and they're just, they're countless examples right. of large local publications that go under either because they're not well-managed or because they just failed to make a transition into the digital age or whatever, they're, they're, or because their community lost their relevance. If you, if you saw a list, if I showed you right now, yeah. a list of all the Jewish papers in America from like 150 years ago, you'd be like, there were Jews who lived there? You'd be like, what? Yeah. Now like, there are no Jews yeah. who live there anymore, yeah. right? So demographics, right. market economics, yeah and also the general news ecosystem, right. and where Jews fit into all this yeah. has changed so dramatically that the role that Jewish media has to play today and Jewish publication has to play is fundamentally different. Right. We believe that there is a need for a trusted, agile, creative, and diversified set of voices yeah. that find people where they are. It's kind of a jargony, like nonprofit jargon. Right. It's a cliched sentence, but it's true. Yeah. That doesn't assume any knowledge or lack of knowledge that doesn't assume any kind of ident identification mm. that is appealing and interesting to different people. In other words, an outlet that focuses not on one type of person or on one demographic, but that tries to serve five or six key demographics right. and that looks at those demographics, like we said earlier, not just in terms of their age or their income or what bucket they fit in religiously, right. but that starts with great content that's relevant and that's meaningful and optimizes it to the highest possible standard and to be as appealing and as valuable and informative to as many people as possible.
So what you're saying, you know, reminds me a lot. These, some of the themes that, you know, are recurring a little bit, there's first of all the high standard, which is like at the baseline of everything that you do mm. um, and kind of informs the decision-making process and everything, which is, I mean, it, I think it's like, I don't want to take it for granted, it's an important piece of any, any, anybody who wants to be the, the um, you know, wants to share information with other people. That should be, the, that should be a, a motivation, right? Standards of, of reporting, um, you know, fairness, uh, and, and, and just keeping, you know, keeping, being a, a channel for, for, for information, right? And we're seeing today, you know, there's, there's of course, what's happening on the, the local news level, both in the Jewish world and outside of the Jewish world. We're also seeing with all the social media platforms, right? There's, there's a ton out there about, like, who's, you know, mainstream media and trusted news outlets and all this type of, like, um, um, Lots of different themes, you know, that are that are kind of influencing and, and creating um, almost mayhem. And like, you know, what, where do I get my my information? How do I cut out, you know, the signal out of the noise and all that stuff? And, how, and yeah. So, so this is what this is. It's interesting because nothing is ever that new. Everything kind of comes yeah. full circle. In as I mentioned earlier, yeah. the 2010s was this very special era of media, where it seemed that all these new upstarts, BuzzFeed and others, were going. To, to take over the established world of publications. People okay. were literally writing obituaries for the New York Times, yeah. saying like, they're done, they're yeah. finished, yeah. forget about the New York Times. Yeah. Everything's gonna be BuzzFeed. Yeah. BuzzFeed, I, believe it or not, was offered, I think like half a billion dollars from Disney and they turned them down. Well, and talk about hubris, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so what ended up happening, and, and, in, and in that period where it seemed that any newcomer could dominate the airwaves and garner all the attention in the world, it seemed that the only thing that mattered was growth. Yeah. Numbers, 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 growth, growth, growth. The ingredient to that growth was social media. Right. And yes, to your point, social media, we now know, the algorithms skewed heavily in favor of polarizing, divisive content. Yeah. It basically pitted us against each other. Yeah. It fed the anger machine in a cyclical nature. Yeah. And eventually we got to a point where the sources of information that were feeding this public brawl yeah. were often manipulated. They were often malicious. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is, Facebook and other media outlets, Twitter, now have taken a huge credibility hit mm. in terms of their value to society, certainly as it comes to news, right. right? And following the cycle of news. Mm. For publishers like us, who are very proud of what we do, who hold ourselves to a really high standard, there is a glimmer of hope yeah. that all of a sudden the value of a brand, the value of a trusted newsroom, the importance of an editor, of editorial review, of due diligence, of fact checking, all these things that are, that might have come off as necessary evils or burdens in the area of produce fast, 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 you know, yeah. get on Twitter as quickly as you can. Now they're going to be a mark of quality, a mark of respectability it's still gonna be very, very hard for publications to make money right. and to support themselves because getting in the business, what, any media business, whether you are talking about hard news, yeah. Jewish news, Jewish education, you name it, is expensive. There's no question about it. It's gonna be hard to find the money for that, but there's reason to believe that advertisers and members of the general public are gonna pay much more attention to organizations that didn't lose credibility over the course of the crazy past 15 years right. and who stuck to their mission and stuck to their guns, or at least I, I, I 
feel that way, and yeah. I don't think it's just wishful thinking. Right, and that brings you back to like the mission that you, you, you mentioned earlier about being, you know, you're trying out this new language, maybe of a, being like the connective tissue, yep. right? Um, might, it, I mean, it's, it's entirely necessary. It really, it really matches, you know, what we try to do with, with Z3, right? Mm -hmm. We're like, we need to have spaces, third spaces, right, that are maybe not online, maybe not our work um, or our, you know, our professional setting, not in you know, our family, but we can come together you know, despite our disagreements and have these conversations because like only through that engagement we can really, um, you know, create connections and meaning and community, et cetera. And it sounds, it, it resonates, you know, it gets me excited to hear that because, and it gives hope to your point because um, the community will ultimately want or gravitate, right? This is uh, towards um, a, a reliable source of information, news source um, in this case in particular. So they might want to invest in kind of create uh, uh, and to make sure that that continues so that we don't kind of like feed into this like, you know, public brawl that is also really a hotbed for a lot of like hate yeah. and, and uh, um, division. And, yeah, division in all kinds of, in all kinds of forms. Now, I, have a, I, I just want to go back for a second on the, to, um, to ask again about like the difference um, between like the national, like this national arch or arc, um, that's what we're looking for, like an umbrella Right, um, as a wire service, etc., and, and and also with sustaining these local news, uh, and the angle um, that I'm that I that I'm I'd like to ask about, uh, which relates to this polarization. Right, um, Ezra Klein in his book um, uh, Why We're Polarized, he talks a lot about like part of the reasons that everything seems so um, extreme these days because everything becomes like on a national level, right? So like all these subject matters that are actually they're often local and can be solved by folks who, who end up living together, knowing each other, and, and, and can potentially bump into each other, everything's escalated to a national level. It's almost, so it's like, it's like your team, you know, you might not um, uh, agree with everything they say, but because like on the national stage, it becomes of, uh, of supreme importance. And he, he lists other reasons why, like, uh, to that polarization, but to his point, like, one of the things, like, you know, we are neglecting often the local arenas, right? The local news channels, the local causes, you know, the. Um, uh, the municipalities, whatever, and everything's escalated. Is that something that that you find um, uh, true also in this, you know, in this area? Is it a little bit different because it's a smaller market? How does that? Um, yeah. I think that in we don't. There is there is an alarming lack of investment in local institutions and issues mm. at all levels, whether you look at it from the perspective of what is produced in a typical newspaper, Jewish or not. Right. But the thing I want to maybe harp on a little bit more here is even at a financial level, okay. right? I think in Silicon Valley, and I can't really speak to Jewish philanthropy in Silicon Valley, but I can speak to Silicon Valley philanthropy in general, which is famously extraterrestrial in its ambition, <laughs> okay. right? Yeah. So I will donate a half a billion dollars to colonize Mars, right. but I will not give $10,000 to a local school right. because that's, I, I'm about much bigger issues yeah. than that, yeah. right? I, I personally believe and I professionally believe that equipping local organizations with the attention, the funding, and the support that they need is of the utmost importance. And that's also why I'm a huge fan of larger organizations that support local endeavors. Mm. 
to give you an example. So federations, part of my job, in fact, most of my job is yeah. partnering with or Jewish organizations, helping mm -hmm. them reach our audience, experiment with cool forms of content that can help them support, uh, you know, promote their initiatives, promote their programming, achieve more with their limited marketing dollars. This is what I do. I work with Jewish professionals all day. Right. Foundations should do this too, right? Foundations mm -hmm. should be in the business of approaching a Jewish nonprofit, a Jewish organization that does important work in the community and say, well, what do you need? Yeah. Like, 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 tell me, I'm here to help you. I'm literally here to help you. We could not do, 70 Faces Media could not do its work without a group of four major national, uh, national foundations, right. right? That each give us a half a million dollars. There are a few other foundations that give us a good amount of money. My business vertical brings in like a, a third, about a third of the revenue to the company. We want to grow the revenue that our, that our grassroots mm. use and our users generate for us, right? But when you look at the pie chart of a local organization, it, most local organizations don't have the good fortune that we have at 70 right. Faces Media. Yeah. They're depending largely on members of their own community with some local philanthropists. And the pressure on members of that community is just tremendous. Right. So what are the things that we aren't talking about enough today in general because it, it's kind of a painful topic that, that no one likes to approach? And, I, and I, I don't think this is the fault of Jewish media. I want yeah. to be crystal clear. Yeah, yeah. The cost of Jewish education. Yeah. Jewish institutions, crumbling Jewish institutions that are at risk of losing what, the, like the, the, the infrastructure that was vested in them 30, 50 years ago, right. right? There's a real economic crisis that even though many people in the Jewish community, not all obviously, but many people are, are fortunate, they're, they're, they have means, they have enough means to, to live a comfortable life, being Jewish takes on this enormous financial burden yeah. on them. And they might not in, they might not invest in the Jewish education of their children. They might not invest in the Jewish community because they feel like their money would be better spent elsewhere. And it is imperative that Jewish media, that Jewish leadership brings out the beautiful Jewish stories, the, 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 the sings the song of Jewish community mm. in a way that inspires donors institutions and people who aren't affiliated to feel like, you know what, this is my posse, this is my group. Right. I might not agree with everything that goes on in the Jewish community here. I don't like these people. I would never sit foot in that shul. But by and large, I'm going to invest my time. I'm going to invest my tzedakah dollars. I'm going to go the extra mile for my children to be connected to the local Jewish community. So it's not just about media. I see it right. as a much deeper problem. Yeah. But there's two, I mean, there's two points that kind of, that you, I, I, it sounded to me that you folded into one, maybe unintentionally, but there's like, one is the cost of participation, mm -hmm. right? And, and like, if you're looking at the full, you know, the, the entirety of the Jewish community, of course, there's, it, it maps, right? There's low, there's people who make more, make less, whatever, that's, that's the dynamic of our, of our society. Um, so there's, there's the cost of participation for everybody. Mm -hmm. And then there's also like, where the philanthropic dollars are going. Right, so people might say because you, you you raised maybe this was not what you meant, but it, so I just want to clarify maybe. So I I rather give my money elsewhere because it'll be better managed and better used. Is that because is that you're saying philanthropically or just 
um, or, or something else, just a cost participation. I, uh, I'm not getting the product I'm paying for. I might as well go elsewhere. I guess a little bit of both. Okay. I, I, yeah. I, I did mean them in separate ways. I do think that no one is going to support Jewish organizations and Jewish causes right. other than Jewish philanthropists. Yeah. I mean, in some cases, Jewish organizations that do important social work might receive federal funding right. or state funding right. because what they're doing, think about Jewish board, think about right. maybe even the JCC, retirement homes, yeah. hospitals, organizations that very much service the public good. They're not, they're Jewish in name. They're not Jewish yeah. in Highest their impact, yeah. Yeah. right? Highest, exactly, ADL. Yeah. But then there are other institutions, and these are the oftentimes the very, very local organizations yeah. that service the Jewish community, that don't service necessarily the most wealthy segments of the Jewish community, mm. and they're the ones who are struggling the most to fund themselves. And Jewish media is kind of a case in point. There is, of course, there are, of course, billionaires that, you know, cynically bankroll publications because they have large political agendas. Right. It's unfortunately all too rare for great philanthropists to support Jewish media out of a true sense of commitment mm. to Jewish dialogue and Jewish, and Jewish peoplehood, yeah. right? And because it's such a necessary piece of like the communal fabric, right. um, it's something that you feel that might be sometimes overlooked Right, and if in the in the hierarchy of of like local Jewish institutions that to be supported, media might be pushed down because its its significance or its importance in the role that it plays in maintaining that sense of Jewish community is sometimes uh, undervalued, maybe underappreciated. And 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 oftentimes, I think at a certain level of do, of of donations, people get a real sense of entitlement, mm. and they 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 can't wrap their head around supporting, say, an organization that writes a critical article about something that they care about. Mm or that gives voice to someone that they don't, don't like. Right. It takes some real kishkas yeah. to support an, an open and communal Jewish media ecosystem. Right. It's much easier yeah. to support a partisan yeah. Yeah. media operation yeah. where you kind of know exactly where there's an agenda and you feel comfortable with it and you're right. like, look, this is gonna be great. And I'm not, I'm not saying it in a critical way. Like if you care deeply about Israel, if you care deeply about anything, uh, about feminism, yeah, you care about picture, yeah. any, any cause that you want, yeah. and you have the means to support a media organization that is just all in on that one topic, yeah. right? And there's a clear direction in which it can go, good for you, you should yeah. support it. But organizations that are more broad in their outlook, that, that act as a fourth estate, that don't just do fourth estate stuff in the tr traditional journalism sense, but also bring out voices of emerging creative talent, yeah. young writers yeah. that are experimenting with new forms of expression through social media, through print, through video, yeah. that aren't just doing it as influencers on social media, yeah. but that are actually um, committed to some kind of communal conversation. Yeah. That's the role that media plays, and it's a risky business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we certainly feel you know, we're 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 very also very fortunate. You know, we are we are a local JCC right. with um, with aspirations that kind of exceed our, our geographic uh, catchment area. Right. Mm -hmm. We talk about this internally about like how we understand the our ability to influence um, 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 or, or or help shape a public discourse around specific topics. Right. And that's kind of at the core of Z3. But but certainly there is like a that that challenge that you're describing is something that very much resonates. It's very hard to like 
to t especially, especially in polarized moments like now, to say there is value for that, for that space, right? And like, it, it, it's, it is easier to, to like just align yourself with what you feel is, is true and identifying kind of when, when you have to make that decision is, is difficult. It's not an easy exercise, but certainly like there is value, there is importance of creating those spaces where we can have that type of engagement so it meets an, uh, the needs of, of our entire community. You know, I feel like that's, that's um, uh, sometimes it's accused as like, you know, hiding behind objectivity, right? It's like, no, you gotta make a bold stance. I'm like, no, there's like, yes, there are people who need to make those bold stances, but if we, if we value community, if we value this idea of Jewish peoplehood and, um, um, you know, this age-old ideas of kol Israel, and whatnot, all these languages, right, we're all connected and responsible for each other, then we have to make sure that happens. And what I find, like, um, uh, fascinating, right, with, the, with Israel, right, um, you know, as an Israeli, like, Israel, that's the container, right? There's a country, Right there's a, a, a nation state, a sovereignty, and that you know taxes uh, and uh, and the borders and all that stuff, the economy that defines kind of the shared playground, right? And then the discourse allows for trying out different things and you know levels of polarization. Uh, outside of Israel, you know, speaking for the American context, um, and this has been true for thousands of years, right? When the when the the name of the game was how do you maintain identity or collective identity without sovereignty? Right, so there was mechanisms that we developed for that, and news was part of it. You know, real life uh, place where we can meet was part of it for sure. Ritual, eating, food, dress, all that stuff was to create that sense. And 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 I think Davka today, the mission of doubling down and making sure that that's still possible, is something that very much uh, rings true. And it's, it was just great to like hear your perspective. Um, you know, as as a uh, yes, a media exec. You know, Leo, it is. You know. Uh, you're you're not you're uh, you're a journo in my books at least. You oh, know? thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I take <laughs> but, that as a compliment. Yeah, thank but but you know, but but seriously, like I mean, I I, I find that incredibly inspiring and, and hopeful that there are folks who are committed to keeping that conversation alive, um, and not and not at the expense necessarily of other localized initiatives, which is incredibly important and in kind of supporting them. Um, we didn't talk about you know your 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 uh, the media summit that you did and kind of helping other nonprofits kind of learn the the tricks of the trade, but that was incredibly important um but you know um i want to thank you thank you for joining uh me here in uh, palo alto um yeah it was great and you know i look forward to you know we 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 always uh find ways to work together and i find that really uh, exciting and so I look forward to that and um i want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening follow us on all our platforms we have uh let's see at this point we have of course facebook uh twitter we're going to have LinkedIn, we have YouTube, we have also TikTok. Um, uh, our website, of course, is uh, z3project.org. Um, and uh, just let's continue the conversation. So thank you, Leo. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you.